Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview Rachel L. Swans, author of The 272, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the Catholic Church. It was published in May 2023 by Random House. Rachel Swans is a New York University professor and journalist who writes about race as a contributing author to the New York Times. She was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Eric K. Washington. Rachel, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. At a time when we're witnessing unabashed attempts to censor and even erase history, this family biography widens the lens on one of America's most evaded origin stories. Can you give us a brief summary about the 272 that expands on what is a pretty succinct book title? You know, I always like to start by giving people a sense of who the 272 were and a sense of that moment in which 272 people were sold to save Georgetown. And and to do that, I always like to take people back in time, actually, to November of 1838, back to the docks of Alexandria, Virginia, not far from the nation's capital. And um, if you had been standing there, you would have seen them. Scores of people being loaded onto a ship, forcibly loaded. There were elderly people and husbands and wives, um, parents, children. You would have seen the crush of the crowd, parents clinging to their children, babies wailing. These were enslaved African-Americans who were being sold and shipped down south, far from the world they knew and the people they loved. And they had been enslaved and sold by some of the nation's most prominent Catholic priests, who happened to be among the largest slaveholders in Maryland. And when hard times hit, they sold 272 men, women, and children, human property, to save what was their most prized mission project, the college we now know as Georgetown University, which was the nation's first Catholic institution of higher learning. And, you know, these priests were successful. Georgetown survived. We all know it as one of our elite universities, but it came at a terrible, terrible cost. And these families were torn apart. And as you mentioned, almost completely forgotten for more than a century. And when I first stumbled across this story and this history, I was flabbergasted. You know, Catholic priests enslaved people? Catholic priests bought and sold people? I wanted to know more about the priests, and I wanted to know more about these families. Uh, That was one of my next question. You first reported on the story as a front page article in the New York Times. How did you come to learn about it? It's one of those serendipitous things that happen sometimes in newspapers. It came to me like completely unexpectedly. A colleague of mine received an email from a Georgetown alum who was the CEO of a tech company 
And he was pitching a story and he said, you know, hey, I want to offer the New York Times an exclusive about a slave sale in 1838 that benefited Georgetown. And she was a business reporter. She was intrigued, but uncertain. Like, was this even a story? And, you know, what do we do with this? And I always say that it's my great fortune that she didn't delete the email. And she didn't because she remembered that I had written this book about Michelle Obama's ancestors. And I had some experience with mining the 19th century archives. And so she forwarded it to me. And um, I knew immediately that it was a story, you know, my first book allowed me to explore how slavery shaped American families. And I could see immediately that this would be the next step that I'd like to take in terms of my research, examining how slavery shaped one of our important contemporary institutions. And I recall that it was a pretty substantial article. So why was it important to you to pursue it further as a full-fledged book? Well, you know, when that first story ran, and it ran in April of 2016, under the headline, 272 slaves were sold to save Georgetown, what does it owe their descendants? There was an enormous response. When the story was first published, we knew only of about a handful of descendants, and we felt like for sure there were more. And so we ran a sidebar asking people, are you connected to this? And linking to one of the important documents, which was the manifest, the passenger list of the ship that carried many of these people, the ship that left from the docks in Alexandria. And that document was important because it had first and last names and enslaved people often appear only by first names. So we said, you know, do you recognize any of these names? Are you from Southern Maryland, where the plantations were? Are you Black and Catholic? And scores of people responded. And these were Black people who are reading the New York Times and saying, oh my God, like, were my ancestors sold by Jesuit priests? And the combination of the response, both from ordinary readers and all of a sudden this growing descendant community made me convinced that there was more to be done here. I didn't know how much more, but I could tell that there was more. What's lost on the general public about the relation of many venerable American institutions of higher learning to the institution of slavery? You know, I think that many of us think about slavery as something that happened a long time ago, nothing to do with me. Um, this is often one of the challenges I think that you face as a as a writer, as a biographer, if you're writing about the enslaved, the impulse that you know a lot of people in your audience might have just to turn the other way and say, no, thank you. I think there's also a sense that what slavery was about was about one person selling another person, full stop, and that's the end of it. And the truth is that slavery was foundational to so many of our contemporary institutions. It fueled the growth of so many of our institutions. I write here um, in this book about Georgetown and the Catholic Church, but it's not just Georgetown. It's not just the Catholic Church. It's universities. It's religious organizations. It's not just religious organizations. It's banks. <laughs> it's insurance companies. You know, the institutions around us are deeply, deeply rooted in this history. And that is not something that I knew, and I think not something that most Americans know. Mm. And I know in, in recent years, slavery's ties to other universities 
for example, Harvard, Yale, Brown, Columbia, have also come to light. Can you talk a little about why Georgetown's mission, a Catholic college, was fundamentally different from the others? Most of the others were Protestant institutions. Uh, so was there something unique about Georgetown's mission in its relationship to slavery? So I think all of these institutions have deep ties to slavery. Um, Georgetown, one of the things that distinguishes it is this descendant community. This sale in 1838, and I talk about it because it was one of the largest mass sales that was documented at the time, though, of course, there were many other sales. But the Jesuits were excellent record keepers. And so the records are such that it was possible to identify a descendant community. And unlike some of these other institutions, which and some of them have been looking for descendants, but Georgetown, um, there are at least 6,000 people now who have been identified as descendants. And these descendants have taken an active, active role in prodding both the university and the church to make amends in a way that's quite different from almost any other university wrestling with this history right now. Yeah. The enslaved Mahoney family is at the center of your account, particularly the sisters Annie, who becomes Annie Jones, and Louisa, who becomes Louisa Mason, who were born in the early 19th century. But you first introduce us to their 17th century forebear, Anne Joyce. Now, Anne Joyce had arrived in the British colony of Maryland around 1676. Her story is fascinating. She's said to have signed on while in England as an indentured servant to Charles Calvert, Maryland's governor. To many people, Anne's volunteerism may sound odd, but when you write about the charter generations that she was a part of, it seems perhaps not entirely unprecedented. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, yes. This is a multi-generational biography. And as I mentioned, you know, sometimes when you're writing about slavery, you know that you're battling folks who just want to close their ears. So how do you get people to engage? And I thought that the way to get people to engage was by telling the story of a family. 272 people are sold. I was going to focus on one family. And this family, this Mahoney family, is fascinating on so many levels, but their experience parallels the emergence of Catholicism in the British colonies and in the early United States and the church's reliance on slavery. And it starts with the matriarch, Anne Joyce, who, as you said, arrives in the late 1600s as a Black woman who's an indentured servant. And that is not a history that certainly I knew about. I knew about white indentured servants, right? Uh, European indentured servants. But there were Black people in the 17th century who historians describe as a charter generation, Black people who often were familiar with European languages and religious practices, who had a good understanding of the laws that governed the places where they lived in the, uh, in the Americas. And she was of that group. And she arrives with a contract, you know, a term of service, which is usually about five or so years, expecting that she would be a free person. And of course, the doors were closing on that in Maryland and the laws linking blackness and enslavement were being passed and had been passed. And her contract is burned and she's forced into slavery and she loses everything except her story. 
And she tells that story to anyone who will listen, the white people around her, her children and grandchildren. And that story is our freedom was stolen and we should be free people. And her children tell the story, her grandchildren tell the story, her descendants way into the 20th century know that story and they resist. So she has descendants who kill an overseer and are executed. She has descendants who take the Jesuits to court to sue the Jesuits to try and gain their freedom. A few of them do, but most don't. So people have to find another way. So she has a descendant named Harry Mahoney, who during the War of 1812 saves the church's wealth and garners a promise from the Jesuits who say because of his loyalty and his courage that he and his family will never be sold. Of course, that promise is broken in 1838 with that mass sale. Wow, that's so much. I want to talk about the process a little bit. Where did your archival research take you physically or not take you? Oh, you know, so I went all over the place, (laughs) all over the place. So the plantations are in Maryland, in Southern Maryland, and there's Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And that's really where the largest repository of Jesuit records are. But there are records in Virginia There are also records, again, folks were sold to Louisiana. So there are records in parish courthouses all around Louisiana and in New Orleans. The Jesuits, obviously, um, you know, were based in Rome. It's a worldwide organization. So there are Roman records. There are records from England, records from Ireland. The European records, I didn't go. In some instances, some of that was digitized and available for me here. The Irish records, I actually found out about those records and managed to get a um, a journalist in Ireland to you know say, here are these records, please take pictures and scan them. So that's what he did. So it was quite a, a search. I originally thought it would take me two years and it took seven. So that wow. gives you a sense. <laughs> what were the most surprising as you were mining records from archives? I mentioned Harry Mahoney, who was promised that he would never be sold. Um, His daughters, Annie and Louisa, are sold, um, and they are split apart. They never see each other again. Annie, who was shipped off to Louisiana, had a husband who had run off in the earlier 1830s. And in the Maryland records, I found out that he had been recaptured and purchased by the Jesuits right before the sale, and that he ran again. And and so he actually managed to escape, but his family did not. One of the other things um, that has been really interesting about the records that surprised me was that another source of records were sacramental records, the church records, and not just the Jesuit records at Georgetown, but church records in Louisiana. And those were fascinating because a lot of these families betrayed by the church remain Catholic. And the sacramental records, the marriages, the baptisms become important guides, pebbles, as it were, to follow as you're tracing the story because they held on to the faith despite a whole lot of stuff that happened to them. And that was really surprising to me. So I understand from that that there's maybe a personal element too, because I understand you're also Catholic. You're African-American. Those combined personal experiences shape your investigation of the story. Being a, a Black Catholic that you knew you wanted answered or determining what likely sources that you ought to turn to that maybe another non-Catholic, non-African-American might not think of. 
You know, it's really interesting. The story ended up in my lap, not because I was Black or Catholic, but because I had written a book about Michelle Obama's enslaved ancestors. Of course, you know, I'm thinking all the all the time, like, what? You know, how did I not know? Asking my mother, mom, did you know? How did we not know? And my family has very long ties to Catholic New York. You know, my mother uh, lived on a farm when they arrived here from the Caribbean that was run by Dorothy Day, uh, you know, who was a founder of the Catholic Worker Movement and is a candidate now for the sainthood. So it was really astonishing. And actually, early on, one of my editors said, oh, surely you'll write about that. The fact that you happen to be Black and Catholic, too. And I and I actually thought, no, I'm not going to do that because that's not really why I'm doing this or why I do this work. I do this work because I, I really feel like it's so urgent for people to understand the connections between slavery and its contemporary legacies today. That's that's really why. And because I want to tell the stories of these people who have been forgotten. But of course, I am a Catholic. I'm doing this work as I'm going to Mass, as I participate in the sacraments, as I try to make sense um, and understand how the church that I love could have done this. You know, as, you, as you're working on this story, did you encounter pushback at any time? So, you know, it's interesting. It's important to note, I think, that Georgetown had been working on trying to wrestle with this history even before I wrote my first article. They had, by the fall of 2015, had established a working group to look into this history and to think about wrestling with it. So they have not shied away from it. In fact, they were interested in looking into it. I would say that, you know, the responses that I get are mixed, though. You know, like sometimes I hear from ordinary people, ordinary Catholics, you know, why do you need to do that? You know, old history doesn't really have anything to do with us. And certainly there have been within the church and even, you know, among alums and and some within Georgetown, you know, some mixed feelings. Some of the descendants have accused the Jesuits, say that there's internal division to, to such an extent that there's foot dragging, that people do not want to address this history. So it's complicated. Yeah. And now you, the book flows chronologically, but how did you organize your research and writing to build that chronology? You know, as a writer, the question about the narrative structure is always something that you're wrestling with. You know, as a journalist, I'm always thinking about the end, even as I am reporting and writing, like, where am I going? Where is this taking me? And sometimes you look at the whole and it looks so organic and like, oh, surely it must have just, (laughs) that was the way you always thought it would be. You know, I knew I wanted it to be chronological. I didn't always know, though, that I wanted to go back to 1634 when the first Jesuits arrive in Maryland. I think because initially my articles were about 1838 and the sale. So I think for the first year or so of my reporting and research, I always imagined that that would be the starting point. But someone gave me some good advice about my first draft. He said, I think it would be great to write a chronological draft from the very beginning to as far as you can go. And that opened up something for me because I was no longer just focused on that. And when I thought about like, where would I start if I'm literally typing on the page the earliest thing? And I thought, gosh, 
1634. It's the church. It's not just this sale. It's the church. And that was really important. And then weaving together the story of the church, the story of this family as we went on, became clearer and clearer. I didn't know really where to end. I, I decided to end with the deaths of the two sisters and then bring um, the reader to the current day, to their descendants. But I, I thought about a lot of things. Yeah. Now, researching this book obviously acquainted you intimately with several families of the 272. What was your process for giving the Mahoney family the center stage? Right. So as I mentioned, I thought that the way to really engage an audience, because there are so many families, and honestly, there are so many amazing stories, but focusing on one I thought was going to be the way to go in terms of telling the story if I wanted people to get engaged and not lost. So then, okay, which family? Um, I was interested in a family that was torn apart by this sale. There were many families like that. So that's really where I started, was looking to see which families could I find a lot about <laughs> that were torn apart in the sale. And that's really what led me to the Mahoney's. And in fact, probably the thing that was most decisive for me was the lawsuits. Because when you're writing about enslaved people, you're dealing with fragments of information. I mentioned that enslaved people often were only mentioned by first name in records. They're barred by law and by practice from learning to read or write. So there aren't letters typically or journals to rely on. So the fact that these Mahonies had sued the Jesuits and that the lawsuit and the court proceedings still existed meant that there was testimony. There were depositions from the Mahoney's members of the family, from people who knew them. And these people, some of them, were old enough to know Anne Joyce and could talk about what happened to her. So it gave me almost a century of story <laughs> to co cover, you know. That actually relates to the, my, my next question was in yeah. finding the historical record. There are, of course, accounts that remain elusive that you can't uncover. I wondered, how did you navigate those inevitable information gaps and silences? I mean, that's a good question, because obviously I picked the Mahoney's because there was more there than for other families. But they were enslaved, so there are enormous gaps. I think the gaps say something, and I point that out, you know, that the silences speak to the condition, right, that enslaved people were marginalized. So I think the silences are part of the story. The other ways that I dealt with places where I didn't have information was I looked for similarly situated people who could talk about something that the Mahoney family had experienced, like a family being torn apart. There are slave narratives. So I look for people from Maryland who, who lost family that way. You know, the WPA, um, had these also interviews with with folks um, in the 1930s, elderly people who were enslaved when they were children. Those are tricky records in a lot of ways. But, you know, I looked for people who took that journey from Alexandria, Virginia to New Orleans and described what it was like on board a ship. Those were the kinds of things that I did. The other thing I would say is that I've got two narratives that, of course, meet and mix uh, the narrative of the enslaved and the narrative of the priests. There's a decade where I don't have enslaved voices. You know, I, if there's a powerful narrative to tell of the priests, I stuck them right there so that you could, you know, that could carry the story forward. 
when you introduced Anne Joyce in the book's first chapter, you wrote, Anne never forgot what she had lost. Somewhere along the way, she made a decision. She was enslaved, but she would not stay silent. She decided to tell her descendants and anyone else who would listen how the Catholic Church of Maryland had stolen her freedom. She would share it with her children and grandchildren, and they would pass it on from one generation to the next. Our liberty was stolen. We should be free people. That story would be her legacy. But that legacy, as your book chronicles, ultimately manifested in the more concrete form of reparations. Tell us more about Georgetown's institutional response to this unpacked history and the descendants' response. Right. So these descendants who learn about their history from the articles that I'm writing in the New York Times and then from word of mouth and from each other, um, I like to tell people that, you know, people wept, they raged, and then they organized. And they really pressed Georgetown and the Jesuits to do something. Georgetown has taken a number of steps. And as I mentioned, they had been thinking about this even before my articles ran. One of the first things that they did was establish preference and admissions for descendants, legacy status, in effect, for descendants of the enslaved to attend Georgetown. They also created a fund, a $400,000 reconciliation fund. That's what they call it. Raising $400,000 a year is what they've promised to do. And this money is meant to fund projects to benefit the descendant communities. The first wave of grants from that fund went out just this year. Um, They've apologized, of course. The Jesuits, for their part, also apologized. And they partnered with a group of descendants created a foundation, and the Jesuits have pledged to raise $100 million to finance projects that would benefit descendants and racial reconciliation projects. That's the largest effort by the Roman Catholic Church to address its history of slaveholding in in the United States. But fundraising has been slow going there, and it's hard to know exactly kind of where that's going to end up. Is all amazing. Just So how does telling this story make you feel? (laughs) Oh, you know, I like to tell people, A, I've always been a journalist who loves records. B, I'm a sucker for a good mystery. So the combination of this, like the hunt is amazing. I love archival research. It's also really, really hard, you know. I mean, there are times when you read these inventories, you know, that have list of of items, uh, property for sale, the the tablecloths, the crockery, the coffee grinder, the pigs, the sheep, and then the names of the people. And, you know, there are times when I had to just put it down, take a breath, keep going, because it's so, so important. You know, enslaved people have been largely left out of the origin story that is traditionally told about the Catholic Church. And I really felt like it was so important for people to know about these families and to learn about their lives. Have you any advice for first-time biographers working on a project of similar scope and complexity? It's going to take longer than you think. (laughs) (laughs) How long would it take you? I should have asked you that earlier. Uh, Yeah, I thought it was going to take two years. It took seven. I would say there's always more than you think out there and always, you know, less than what you need. But I got started on this in 2016 because I felt like this was urgent. I just felt that understanding these ties between the past and present were so urgent. 
And to be honest, it feels even more urgent now when we're at a time where some people and politicians are trying to prevent the teaching and this kind of work. So I would say, hold on, keep going. It, it really matters. That was author Rachel Swans speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Eric K. Washington about her latest book, The 272, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the Catholic Church. It was published by Random House in June of this year, and this interview was recorded via Zoom on August 16th, 2023. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.